Hello and welcome to another episode of A Lifetime of Planet Groove, the podcast celebrating the incredible live album from Maceo Parker and his band released in 1992, Life on Planet Groove. I'm Guy and Ed is with me as ever. Hello, Ed. Hey, Guy. How are you doing this week? I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Can't complain. Good. (laughs) Good. In fact, we spent a few minutes before we started recording tonight just complaining, but that's all right. We're we're entitled. Yeah. Yeah, we off air, off air complaining, but yeah. So we've got a uh, another great interview on this episode, haven't we? Who who have we got in this episode? Yeah, so uh, I spoke to Natasha Madison, and she has managed Maceo Parker, uh, well, for just over thirty years, and um, first met him in the period when he was um, recording those albums with Minor Music. So that's um, well, she'll talk about this a little bit in the interview today when he was recording Roots Revisited and Mo Roots, and of course, Life on Planet Groove. Yeah, so it's all that sort of... She started in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, met Maceo in the early um, 90s, but had taken her first steps into music management towards the late 80s. And actually, that's where we're going to join this conversation when she's just describing how her long-term association with Maceo Parker began. How did you take your first steps into music management? Well, I was working with, I sort of fell into doing a lot of freelance work and I was doing some freelance bookkeeping for an old school friend who was actually a bit of a rogue. But he was in music management and we were managing because I ended up sort of doing all kinds of stuff rather than just the bookkeeping. Um, we ended up managing um, some of the young Turks from the from the British jazz scene then um, and through those connections met I met Maceo Parker um, back in ni- the end of 1990 and we started doing management then and I started doing it full time from kind of just before Planet Groove came out and it was because um, me and my then business partner had been asked to step in and help with some um a, sh- a particular show that featured Beach C. Collins and Maceo and Fred and Pee Wee. Um, and, yeah, uh, because because the tickets weren't going so well, so we kind of arranged some MTV appearances and interviews and stuff and just sort of helped push the thing a little bit and got to meet Maceo, who just recorded his first solo album of that period, which was Roots Revisited, Um and I remember listening to it, going to a Jazz FM interview here in London with Macy, listening to bits of the album for the first time, and it just sounded so fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that's what happened. I parted company with the business partner and went on to manage Maceo full-time, which has been my career um, up to this day, although he's not really doing so much anymore, that, you know, since the pandemic and everything so I'm doing other bits and pieces but that's in a very short story my <laughs> the you know how I got to do what I was I've been doing for the last 30 years sure and I mean for Maceo that was a, a pivotal point in his career because you know I mean he, he'd um, started playing again I think with James Brown in the mid 80s and then of course towards the end of the 80s yeah. James um, you know spent time in prison have you spoken much to Maceo about that period before Roots Revisited and, and what was happening in his career and how he came to be, you know, uh, recording with Stefan Minor and, and Minor Music? I have indeed. <laughs> um, over the years, I've sat in, in so many interviews that, you know, I'm sort of probably silently miming the answers to some of the things myself. But what happened was Fred Wesley asked Maceo to go back to James um, given their long history through Funkadelic and everything, I think Fred said, hey, come back over here for a bit. And Maceo ended up staying a little bit longer than maybe he he originally intended. And then, of course, um, in 1989, um, James got sent to prison, sent to jail. Hey, it's Ed here, just interrupting my own interview because, you know, I can. And I wanted to play you a little bit of music at this point. We're going to listen to a part of the last track from the original release of Life on Planet Groove, Soul Power 92, and a part where Maceo and the band are chanting, let him out. This is in reference to James Brown's incarceration, which is why I wanted to play it here. 
When I first heard this album years ago, I didn't realize who it was they were referring to. And it was only when I listened to another Maceo live recording, the Bremen concert a few years back, where they go into uh, a bit more detail, that I realized who it was we were talking about. The chant actually comes from a track that Maceo recorded in 1989, when James was still in prison at the time. Uh, The track, of course, was called Let Him Out. And here you can hear the band getting into it. And because we're very Maceo-focused in today's episode, I might just leave it playing out with a little bit of the solo by the one and only Fred Wesley. Um, James got sent to prison, sent to jail, and Maceo thought, rather than go out and look for things, I'm going to see what comes to me. And the thing that came to him was Stefan Miner and his Italian partner then, and they said, will you make a jazz album with this? We think, you know, there's a, there's a kind of market for this. And, and I think they'd all worked together on a couple of shows with or maybe just one big show with Bobby Bird and Vicky Anderson, some of the sort of James Brown alumni. Um, so Maceo said yes, basically. And then the the Roots Revisited album was made and became a huge success. Absolutely, yeah. A, a, um, a big moment in his career and also a huge you know thing for minor music as well. I think that was by far the biggest... Yes. You know, project that it had at that point and yeah. a, a launching pad for that label as well well you know um, for everything that came after it certainly so I mean there was lots of touring happening then as well did you get to were you with the band at the time or were you you know managing from a distance how, how were things happening for you then are we starting if we're sorting starting about 1990 uh, that's when the touring started in in you know um, in conjunction with the the Roots Revisited album um uh, and then the second album that followed it, More Roots. So by, yeah, 92, the serious, serious touring was taking off and my role was always to be on the road with that too. So yep. it was pretty, you know, it was, it was pretty intense because um, we were doing a lot of small clubs, a real lot of small clubs, and, and that was the shift I kind of wanted to move, but Planet Groove in its own way sort of helped fuel that. So, you know, we're talking pre-internet days here, um, and and stop me if I'm jumping ahead too much, but all very early ways that people communicated as they did before there was like full-on, um, you know, everything as we know it today. Um, sure. And everything, you know, all the things like bands on tour, you just looked up. So one thing I noticed in this early period, um, and I started working with different, you know, choosing different agents, for example, in the US and stuff like that, uh, was that there was this incredibly strong response from young, particularly in the States I'm talking about, first of all now, from young college age audience, particularly guys. And they would be maybe somewhere like maybe in, Maybe they were on a, you know, a European leg or something in the studies and they'd write back and say, you know, to their friends maybe in Ann Arbor or somewhere at university and say, hey, we just saw this really cool show and you should see it. So (laughs) I was quite aware that things were being spread in that way. Now it would be much, much faster because of the internet, I think, maybe. But, But back then it was kind of interesting to see this evolution very young people so people who didn't have a particular bond or allegiance or musical allegiance I should say with James Brown and those kind of you know that the generation that's kind of older than them um, but felt like they were discovering someone and something for themselves that was 
absolutely sort of great for college life in particular. And I'm not saying only that, but that was a, a really big part of sort of what fueled things. And the album absolutely fueled that. Well, that's what I was going to ask next, because it's such an important album to me and something that, you know, I still remember the first time I've heard it, I revisit it so many times, you know, there's three or four times a year I could just go through a period of, you know, just listening to it nonstop. But I think something that I found is that it's the sort of recording that you can share with people who think they don't like funk music or maybe don't know what funk music mm. is. And it just sort of crosses those boundaries that you can place, you know, you know, I'm not even talking about converting people to funk, but just people who don't think they like that type of music can listen to that and just yeah. get the experience of, oh my goodness, you know, you feel like you're there in this small club listening to it. Yeah. And actually what you've just said completely describes my experience of inviting people to their first Maceo show, which means the album really did its job. Um, because that you know, I'd say, okay, just come. You know what? You're going to like it. Just come. <laughs> you know, you're going to be a convert <laughs> after this. Just come to the show. You know, I know you think you don't like jazz or you don't like funk or I'm not really. Just come because it's not about that. And yeah, I think the essence of, particularly in that early bit, but always with Maceo, the essence of what his live shows portrayed was what George Clinton once said is in funk. The audience is the star. So it was it was that interaction between the audience. And actually, this was true whether it was a big or a small club. Um, but you're right. I think it was a fantastic calling card. And I think possibly nobody realized what kind of a calling card it was. So I don't know if you know this about the album, that actually up till certainly the late 90s, that album was selling more in each consecutive year than it had in the previous year. So it, in other words, it built and grew from its audience already. Rather than having, like most albums, would have a peak, you know, you release it, everybody gets to hear about it, there's a whole lot of advertising, it peaks and then sort of filters downwards. Planet Groove did kind of the opposite, it had this thing as people learnt and learnt about it that it sold more in each consecutive year. Certainly in the states. Certainly, if you look at the records in the states, you know the pop star records. Um, so it's it it's a little bit different to how things sure. usually work. But there you and, are. Um, there was only one other you know live recording that I'm aware of, sort of post Life on Planet Groove, with the um, where it was released as the soundtrack album in the UK but I think under my name is Maceo maybe in, in the US and some other areas. No it's released in in two ways so that it was it's primarily a DVD and it was released as the soundtrack to that which um, was released as just Maceo the soundtrack maybe but actually the the overall thing of it was my first name is Maceo. Sure um, yeah. And it was yeah a, a, a documentary about Maceo, which was again um, Stefan Minor was was very involved in, and that was in '94. I think it might have been just my my odd copy because again, you're talking sort of pre-internet days here. Even before I knew of the documentary, I just found yeah. the record one day, and it, but you know later discovered um, everything else that went along with that release. Yes, well. was that a, a, a deliberate decision? Do you think after that point not to record more live albums, or was studio the focus for a particular reason after that point? A number of things, I think. First of all. Um, that was pretty much the last, I think, the last collaboration with Stefan Minor. Um, mm -hmm. So, and we had a gap. We, well, um, we had a gap with recording because then uh, we had been with RCA for Southern Exposure, which was the studio album before uh, before the documentary soundtrack. And we decided to shop around a bit we decided maybe we'll look at independence and a little bit let's see who comes to us again that although I had gone I'd gone to all the big boys and I felt and they were boys by the way sure <laughs> yeah there are very few record label execs who are women even in this day but back then almost none probably about two uh and there'd be interest and then it wouldn't feel quite right or I f we felt that people wanted to make their Maceo album rather than a Maceo Maceo album. And then along came an, another German, actually, for Europe, a um, great guy called Joachim Becker, who became Maceo's producer and um, 
we did a series of albums with him. And in the States, we went with the complete independent, um, which to this day, I'm very close friends with the the guy that owns that company, which is called What Are Records. And, um, and everybody said, oh, you don't want to do that. Do you know the people that are most like consistent with statements and royalties and accounting is that company to this very day. So, <laughs> um, But I knew in my heart it was time to be independent. I knew that that's what was important for us, at least in that way, you know, rather than with the big label, and it, it did work. Um, and I'm not, I haven't quite answered your question, but I feel I have to put a bit of history and context in there. So you, the thing about, live is you can only do so many live and then everything becomes like a live album uh and i think one of the things we tried to do later on so there was this very big gap and then we released funk overload which was in uh 98 early 98 and part of the and part of what we kept wanting to do was have partly a live studio feel you know but also it had been a gap and we felt, hmm, time to just see where this goes now, you know. Let this take its own kind of trajectory with the ideas we have for now. I don't know that it was conscious we're not going to do a live album. It was just that other things led us there. And, of course, we did do, with when Mose started doing work with the WDR Big Band, that was a live album, the first one of those, because the quality of those shows with the live audience was better. You know, what happens when you do those kind of recordings with the big band where you come in as a, as a guest is um, you record everything as you go. And there's a potential album there. It's a recorded album in the studio. And then because of Maceo's name, um, we got to do like a ton of tours, a ton of dates and a couple of tours, um, which most guests mm. with the the WDR band didn't do it's pretty expensive putting a big band on the road so you have to you know you have to time it for festivals and things and the odd small club too that was fun uh, we even <laughs> went back to that same club in Cologne I don't and I looked at this and I went well okay I can just about see <laughs> how it happened with uh yeah a small band because back then Macy didn't have background singers he didn't even have a bass player you know Actually, that's not true. For Planet Groove, he did, because Vince Henry came and played bass. But but anyway, yeah, so so we went back to that little club in Cologne with the big band, and I was like, how are you going to fit everyone on stage? Um, I have seen it done, so I do know. I've, you know, <laughs> I do know how it gets done, but I was still like, oh, boy. <laughs> um but what happened, yeah, so so what happened was that was the next, ostensibly, the next live album we did was a big band live album because the live shows, and it was mostly recorded in, I think we took most of the tracks from, from a show in Paris, maybe one or two from elsewhere. That's the other thing is you can sort of mix and match versions. But it was the energy of the live shows that that just translated, um, even though obviously with the big band, because you've got big group of people you're playing from cheap music still you can't deviate you can't go into great long beautiful extended grooves like happens on shake everything you've got on life on planet groove you have to keep it you know within the certain formula but the but the energy is still there regardless <laughs> um and the audience you know sure. equally wild and i think of course it being uh, france people got up and danced a lot even to big ben <laughs> So circling back then to, uh, to Life on Planet Groove, I'd like to ask you a little bit about um, what it means to you personally and, and then from there talk a little bit about, you know, from your relationship with Maceo, what that time and that album means to him. But I mean, thinking if it's possible to take the two apart, not as a manager, but just as a, a listener and a music fan, you know, what, what does that music mean for you? So it, it represents... The music on there is fantastic. You know, each of the players is so fantastic. Um, and I particularly love, although I'd love it anywhere, but I particularly love that there's a version of Children's World on that. Um, you know, even though it's also on Roots mm. Revisited, it's it's one of my favourite tracks for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it's one of my favourite songs of Macy's for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken to people who've, 
told me how that track has rescued them from very dark despair because they feel it reaches into them in that way. So I think there's that. I adore the version of Georgia on that album. Me too. I love Pee Wee Ellis's flute in the beginning. It's very hard for me to just relate to it as just an album because actually one of my stories in, in touring that time, sort of 92 into 90, actually 93, was we used to, one of the places we used to play in the States was a little uh, club in Boston that was in a hotel called Scullers and it was your typical sit down, you know, with tables jazz club. And I also had a bit of a thing. It, it died off after a while, but I had a bit of a thing the first time we played there where people said, you can't get up and dance. And I was like, well, why the heck have you actually um, booked us then? Because, you know, there's a story Mesa used to tell about. I, I have to tell this in conjunction because it's the same It's the same principle. When Mesa was working with George Clinton, his job was to kind of keep everything smooth and organised. So he didn't play much. That's why there aren't that many things from live shows when, when Mesa was playing. Yes, he did play, but not as much as you might expect or want. Hmm. And they they were playing an army base at one time. And the, the person in charge of the game came up and said to Mesa, look, some of the guy, top brass are here with their wives and we're wondering if George could tone down his language a little bit for this show. <laughs> and Mesa said, ah, I don't know, but I'll try. And he went to George and said, you know, repeated the request. And George said, they know who they booked. <laughs> and actually, according to Mace, you know, out comes George and the first words out of his mouth are probably not <laughs> exactly yeah. what they didn't want. But there you go. That's George for you. Not Maceo, because his idea was always like, you know, you could invite your grandmother and your six-year-old kid and nothing would make you flinch, you know, being at his shows without them losing any power. But, you know, different strokes, different folks. But that's exactly how I felt. I felt like George Clinton in that situation. <laughs> what do you mean dancing? Why are you trying to sit these people down? This is the whole point. This is the essence of these shows. Um, and I say that was fueled by, you know, college kids playing this in playing Life on Planet Crew in their dorms and at their parties and things. Um, and how I continued with that club. This is what I did because in the end. Um, Although I might have another reputation, I'm actually really about kind of, you know, uh, being reasonable. And I said, well, to our agent, if this if this club wants us again, we do it in the ballroom of the hotel where people can get up and dance. That's what you're going to do, you know, if, if you want Macy again in your venue. <laughs> and to their credit... Oh, they did it. That was my next question. What happened? <laughs> and it was a huge success. They couldn't believe what a success it was. And they made probably more money because they got sold more tickets. And people were dancing. Sure. They drink a bit more when they dance. Well, I mean, the, the crowd, like you've said before, you know, about the, the crowd being the star in that type of music and, and the way that people relate to it. And for me as well, yeah. you know, uh, comparing to other kind of live funk recordings, I think that's a big part of what makes Life on Planet Groove somehow a little special or different to some of the others? I mean, in part, even just the mix, the crowd is so loud in the mix, you know, unusually so for that sort of live album that it, you, like I yeah. said before, it really gives you that feeling of you being in there in that moment. So, yeah, certainly hard to imagine the same sort of performance happening without the crowd. Yes, and I love that. Actually, it, I will give a huge credit to Stefan for this, um, that he didn't try and cut, um, shake everything you've got. You know, yeah, it didn't matter if radio were going to play it or not. But, you know, at that time, we weren't getting anything much except college radio play, guess what? And they don't care so much about the length of things. And, and radio is everything in the state. Um, even to this day, it's a whole other, you know, yes, there's internet radio and everything. But um, those are the things that are important, you know. So, so I would credit the album and I know I keep talking about it historically for, but for me that's how it represents itself beyond anything is as something that wasn't 
absolute truth, much truer than the documentary in a way, and maybe because you're not having to get all kinds of things in visuals, a really true representative of what those live shows were and what followed on from that, you know, how Maceo's career grew, um, which obviously, you know, was a, was all, it's always due to him, you know, it's, it's, it's the other people have the sense even the intuition, maybe they don't even know they have it, you know, like Stefan did at that moment, to go, hey, yeah, let's do this live album. And I think for Maceo, it represents that too, because it's it's where he's most at home, he's on the stage. And he's perfect in the studio, don't get me wrong. I did uh, my show, the Tash Talk with um, Joachim Becker, who I just mentioned a bit before, and he was talking about how fast Maceo is in the studio compared to almost anyone, oh, yes. you know. It's like, that's it. He'll go, boom, that's it, it's and it's done. done. It's but, in the can. <laughs> yeah, it's in the can, you know, and that's that's partly years of, of working with James Brown. He'd go from a show and go, I have this idea, right, we're going to put it down, we're all in the studio together. You're also doing live recording, which means... You don't faff around thinking about it's going to be fixed. You just do yeah. it. Um, yeah. Again, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to, to talk on Maceo's behalf, but someone who spent, you know, so much time with him over the last few years, uh, what, what do you think Maceo learned from playing with James Brown? And, and to what extent did, you know, Maceo's music style influence on how those um, recordings came about, you know, beyond just the, the solos that we know? I There are several replies I'd say to that. First of all, Maceo always says... Uh, working with James, being with James was like a university. It was, it, and it was in a way. It was even like you know he he and Melvin, his brother, now sadly mm. lost. We lost him a couple of years ago. Um, you know, left college to join James. So in a way, that was the completion of their university education, if you like. Um, he said. Also, just watching James on stage, he learned everything. He would he would stand there and where he could observe and say, I wonder why he does that or does that, you know, and have and answer the questions for himself, which is of course the very best way of educating yourself. I think James once said, I think the most honest thing I've ever read or heard James Brown say about Maceo was uh, I hired Melvin um, and Maceo came along too, but I didn't realise what I was getting with Maceo. So at <laughs> some point, what I say to people, if they're not sure they know who Maceo is, you know, I might meet somebody at a party or something, not that I go around going, hello, this is who I am, mostly. But I say, <laughs> you have heard Maceo, you just don't know. You've listened to James Brown, right? Or George Clinton, right? And they go, yeah. Well, you know, most of those saxophone solos, most of them, the ones you, the person you're hearing is Maceo. Um, and I think I, this isn't answering for Maceo because although I can in some respects, I also kind of always have this over, you know, an overview, a bigger picture, and I don't have to be humble. He's a humble man. He knows who he is, but he's also like not, you know, he doesn't brag because he doesn't need to, I think. Um, but I see him as this sort of golden thread. If you imagine music as a great big tapestry that's being woven all the time, it's an ongoing weaving moment. But it, throughout bits of music history, particularly anything that's vaguely funky, runs this golden thread of Maceo's horn. And it's, you know, that's what Prince wanted when when he finally got to say, hey, will you come and be on the road with me? Will you record some things? But will you be on the road with me? He he wanted that so what I you know I think those years with James gave Macy a way to hone his craft he also I think probably decided that as a band leader once he came to that point he was not going to be like he was not going to be like James at all most of the people in the bands always said one of the things they love about working with Maceo is he was a sideman before he was a band leader. So they feel very much he connects and understands what it is to be a sideman. You know, so for him, it was never about, you know, I'm getting some special over and above treatment than anyone. It was like, okay, we're all in this together. <laughs> Good. You know, different strokes, different folks again. But but I would say those were some of the things sure. he, he learned. 
Um, and one of the things he constantly talks about in interviews is, you know, that when he was very young, you know, probably still in high school, learning, and he was thinking, well, yeah, like, you know, okay, there's, you know, Maceo Parker plays Charlie Parker. Yeah, that could be kind of cool in a way because we coincidentally have the same surnames. But um, actually, Maceo Parker plays Maceo Parker. And that was what's up with him. And of course, you know, it, it the the beauty, the dis, the absolute joy of Maceo is you can recognize his sound like that, you know, it's like a, it's a voice. It's very clearly a voice. It's true of a lot of instrumentalists, but it's particularly true of him. I've been in, you know, a little market in Camden Town or something and somewhere like someone way over the other side started, you know, was playing something on a little tinny speaker at their stall. And I've gone, oh, yeah, <laughs> know who that is. It's instant, isn't it? Uh and I don't just think that's because of me. I know that might sound, well, you know, you've had a chance, Natasha, to listen <laughs> to Lord, so obviously. But I, but most people will tell you that too, I think. No, absolutely. And I've heard that from, you know, many people and feel it myself as well. You only need to hear, mm. you know, two notes and then you know it's Maceo. And, yeah. You know, partly the sound, but such a, you know, a rhythmic player as well, the artist, you know, um, that's no brilliant because you've led me back to the other thought I had and then I took myself off track. But but I think how James Brown used the horns was very rhythmic, was punchy. He used them like a rhythm instrument. And uh, somebody interviewing Maceo once, um, I think it was on GLR here in, in, in the UK, said, you were listening to you, it's like watching a really great boxing match. And <laughs> it, yeah. If you think about the jabs of boxing, I'm, I'm a boxing fan myself, so sure. I should say that, but <laughs> up front, <laughs> full disclosure. But that description resonates with me as as a way of describing, you know, those those jabs and those cuts and those hanging backs and everything. There's a, ri there's a rhythm to the way Maceo plays that is very much like that. So when you say rhythmic, yes, absolutely. And I think that probably coincided as things do you know Carl Jung said synchronicity is our way to understand the world and I think there was a synchronicity with James Brown's music and Maceo mm -hmm. joining at that point that just they were right for each other I don't think it was even that one influenced the other there's a beautiful story if I may tell another story um yeah please about when Maceo first went to Africa with James so People had heard, you know, James used to call Maceo's name. Um, and when the pl plane landed in wherever it was, I think it was somewhere on the Ivory Coast, everyone at the airport was chanting, you know, everybody was there to see James Brown, but they started chanting, Maceo, Maceo, Maceo. Then James did an interview and, and, and they said, well, tell us about this thing. And it turned out that people in Africa thought that Maceo was a kind of greeting, like saying hi. <laughs> so that's why they were chanting like that but then when James explained Maceo was an actual person they were even more fascinating they went well where did Maceo grow up where was he born where did he go to school and he said it was actually really hard for him to leave the hotel because there meet people outside chanting um, <laughs> it may not have gone down that well with his boss it may not but it those stories have always fascinated me. I, I like the idea completely, as I'm sure you do, of, you know, going around greeting people saying, Maceo, live long and prosper, Maceo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking about, you know, whether it went down well with the boss as well, it just reminded me something, um, a, a story, I don't know if you can shed any light on it, it might just be apocryphal, but th those um, sort of uh, early 70s, um, you know, Maceo's first recordings, uh, uh, well, yes. you know, as, as Maceo and the King's Men and, and you know, being yes. the, the band leader himself. I mean, I'm sure I've heard stories more than once that, you know, perhaps James Brown was trying to suppress that or was not keen on that or had uh, suggested to some radio stations that they might not want to play them. Do you, is there any truth to that, do you think? Or have you ever uh, heard these stories? We can't know, but we suspect, I think everybody does. And um, Cliff White, who um, was a notice noted sort of, yeah, James 
brownologist, if there's such a word, yeah. uh, a journalist from here in the UK, he felt that w there was a lot of truth to that, that actually James paid a kind of reverse payola because he had power, though. I mean, he's brilliant. Um, and I was um, talking to Alan Leeds, um, interviewing Alan Leeds, you know, who 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 was James Brown's tour manager back in the day um, and then went on to work with Prince. But James was really good at making friends with the DJs. It wasn't just paying them. It was, you know, it was that he went in and met the DJs and kind of befriended them and they felt it was just them. He had a real gift for that. Um, and so maybe if James called him favours or told stories, people would feel they, were, they had a greater allegiance to James rather than Maceo. So I think that may in part be true. Secondly, I think because the actual recording label was Leyland Rogers, brother of the more famous Kenny Rogers out of Nashville, it was an odd it was an odd placement, maybe. I don't. I don't know if any. I don't know if majors would have taken them at that point. I mean, those two albums that they did as the Kingsmen were fantastic. Um, you know, still being some <laughs> to this day, which tells you actually a lot about them. Um, and I, I don't know if James really even half admitted that once or twice. But obviously, he wasn't happy. He'd lost. Yeah, the Kingsmen. That the name came about because on the day that they all quit, do you know this story, Ed? That um, well, I'd love to hear you tell it. I think I know which story you might be talking about, but yeah. So, so Maceo had decided, you know, he I think he'd asked James for a pay rise, and James said he couldn't afford it, and Maceo was like, okay, well, you know what, I'm going to go and do my own thing for a bit, uh, and then you can, you know, then you can afford to pay everyone else you know because there were greats about money and pay and everyone else in the band who also felt a bit the same way persuaded Macy no wait for us we're all going to leave together and that's pretty much what they did and was that the point in time then when when Bootsy and Catfish joined they came in after so what happened was the name for all the king's men um was Macy and they all quit and Macy was walking through the the hotel and he's walking past the tour manager's room and the guy says yeah yeah Maceo yes and all of them all of them Maceo and all the king's men and Maceo thought right that's our name so they <laughs> went on to do their own thing and the album was called doing their own thing and Bootsy and Catfish Collins had both expressed interest in they're very very young at this point in joining James but actually they were also interested in hanging out with all those other guys you know <laughs> so they arrived in to find none of those people were there I think I think Fred who'd left earlier got roped back in to sort of fill in you know train up these guys so it was suddenly a whole new band um yeah so that's the, that's the s sequence an order of sort of how that happened and then it was hard. It was hard for Maceo and all the Kingsmen. Having gone through that, then with you know um, from the seventies to then you know nearly twenty years later, you know becoming um, a band leader again. What, what what do you think? You know what did that mean to to Maceo from you know the roots revisited period to to be leading his own band again? I think it just felt quite natural by that point. You know he'd done enough. Even um, when I first met him. He was doing he was doing a couple of shows with Bootsy and it's his 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 a natural sort of MD. He's on the stage doing that anyway, often for band leaders or you know the figurehead, so they can get on and do their thing. He did that for George, you know, for George's band live because there'd always be too many people on the stage, and part of his job was to say you 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 and you you play and you, 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 you stand on one side for this song and that's what he'd do. And they accepted it because it was Maceo, you know, and he could do it in a in a manner that was fantastic, you know. So I think, I think, and also it happened gradually. Nobody knew that that project was just going to turn into the next solo career that lasted, you know, 
over 30 years. So actually, he's been doing it longer than, than the time he was ever with James. Sure, of course, yeah. I just meant, you know, um, um, I was thinking about, you know, those 70s albums in terms of it being, you know, Maceo's name as the, the leader of the band as opposed to being, you know, the man, you know, pulling the strings and, and directing. Um, or, or did that, you know, not matter to him? You know, is... Um, sorry, I got you. I, I misunderstood the time thing. I'll tell you what I know about this. It was always understood he was the band leader, but they did everything incredibly de democratically to an extent that Maceo decided he wouldn't do that again. You know, because um, so they gave all the publishing equally, whoever wrote the song, everybody, including the tour manager, got a percentage. And whatever they made on the gigs, everybody, it was divvied up, everything. And that was partly what, made Maceo sort of end it really was I think there was a situation and I think I can say this fairly and with all due respect because actually there are no king's men left anymore I'm afraid to say um that you know it, it's it's just Maceo um there are no no king's men with us on this plane um that you know, they were there after a gig, and they were all, and they hadn't made much on the gig. And by the time everybody had put in their expenses for gas and everything, and they didn't really have management, you know, they probably weren't at that level uh, where they could. And Maceo didn't, you know, he probably could have gone and got somebody to manage him at that time, but they didn't. They weren't thinking like that, and it was just, you know, no, I spent this and I spent that, and he just couldn't bear it. He was like, ah, oh, you know. Mm okay, guys, whatever, I'm out. And that's, that's what happened. So, and then he went, he went back to James, who'd been asking him to come back, you know, and that's when he started playing alto. So a load of things changed, I think. So I think that's what he learned. Yes, I can, I can be a benevolent band leader. I don't have to be a tyrant or a dictator. Um, because that's not him anyway. But also there does have to be a captain running the ship. It is like a ship too. It really, really is. Years on the road teach you that. You can't have, we once did this for something, you know, should we do the, you know, let's vote on whether we go to sound check or not, you know, or just do a line check. It was something really simple like that. And it got so complicated. I said, please, let's never ever do this again. Just let me choose, <laughs> please. Because everyone has an opinion, you know, you never get, so it's, it's, you know, that's how it works. And, and different bands work in different different ways. So some are more democratic, if you like, than others. But everything pretty much needs a leader. Just just like a band needs a conductor, you know. it's That's, that's, that's how it works. And actually, I'm going to say this. In, there are other ways you can be democratic. So there are people and agents and managers and bands and band leaders who, like, they're a level, it's like a caste society or a class society. There's, you know, there's the band and then there's the crew who are not as important and then there's the bus driver at the bottom of the pile who's really not important. Well, here's the thing that Maceo and I always felt, everyone is equal and everyone has their own job to do and everyone is part of the whole, so gestalt, if you like. Um you know, that that's how it works. So, uh, you know, for me, if we're riding through the night on what's called an overnighter, you know, to the next city after a show, the most important person in the group at that person point is the person who's driving the bus because everything is in their hands. And I would no more treat disrespectfully a bus driver than I would a sound man. And everybody has a part to play. It doesn't mean that you all get to vote on, you know, what songs get to be played or stuff like, or what gigs you do or how much everyone gets paid. It means you get respect and appreciation for you being part of this thing without which you can't do it, you know. So that that's, that's, that's I think, what Maceo was able to do. So he and I were always completely aligned. We always, from day one, thought the same way about that. Everyone, you know, everyone is accorded the respect they're due for the job they, they do. 
and I, and it isn't always run like that, Ed. I wish it was. One of the, you know, I, I hear from people who are out on the road with other people and sometimes I get crying emails, <laughs> you know, people. And, and, and I feel really sad. I feel two things in that space. I feel really sad because I'm not doing that at the moment and I'm not sure whether Maisie will kind of be up for touring again. We don't know. It's unlikely, but we don't know. So we'll kind of leave that there. But I also feel kind of proud that I did the right thing. Um, you know, that I I can reconcile myself with myself. You know, I didn't, I did my best to always make things as comfortable and as good for everyone because you, apart from anything else, you get a better show if everybody's well-fed and well-rested and happy. Yeah, that's fantastic. If I can then, I think um, my final question might just be about um, Maceo's career from James Brown through Parliament Funkadelic, all his own solo work. Does that album, Life on Planet Groove, uh, is that something that he ever reflects on that you think he sees as a high point? Or is it just one out of you know um, many in a career? I think it's it's not just one out of many, but it's not. I think it is a beautiful, and I think he would agree with this, snapshot in time of what was happening in time. And those moments are precious. You know, we're all such, everybody's kind of into their Instagram moments, by which I mean, you know, everybody's recording everything now. You know, here's a picture of me with the Mona Lisa. Here's a picture of me, you know. Hmm eating my pasta tonight, whatever it is. So it's kind of overdone, isn't it, in a lot of ways. We're like flooded with this all the time. But that to me, there's a great um, Annie DeFranco song. I think it's from Little Plastic Castles. And, of course, she worked with Maceo later on. Um, Fantastic person and artist. And she, in one of her songs, talks about a record being... Just that, a record, but a fantastic thing, you know, a record, not anything more, not anything less, a record of a moment in time. And I think that's where Planet Groove, where where Stefan, where anyone who's on it should be most proud, and Maceo, and, you know, is that it's a perfect record of a moment in time. That was amazing with Natasha, wasn't it? And I love that bit that she was saying at the end there um, about how this album, and we've, we've talked about this, haven't we? And we talked about this, I think, on the first episode. Yeah. that it, It's such an amazing, um, it captures a moment. It captures a, a time and a place and a crowd and a band so well, doesn't it? That it you feel like you're there when you listen. That's the thing we've mentioned before, isn't it? You feel like you're there when you're listening. Absolutely, yeah. She so, yeah, just reinforced that, I think. And I love her talking about, you know, Introducing other people to Maceo for the first time and taking them to their first Maceo show and you know, the, uh, the experience that they had there. Um, I loved what she was saying as well. That um, what was the line about Maceo's golden thread? Talking about you know music and, and funk music in particular as this kind of tapestry and you know she sort of intimated at that point as well that you know Maceo is quite a humble guy and wouldn't ever think to say this of himself. But I, I, hmm. I certainly related to what she was saying. I'm sure other people can you know about his path through. James Brown and Funkadelic and working with Prince and this this golden thread weaving its way through the mm. tapestry, I thought was a really nice idea. Oh, do you know what else? Yeah, and there's a couple of things. Oh, go on. What else go just on. jumped out at me as well? You know, we, um, it seems like every episode at the moment we keep circling back to this idea of, uh, you know, the, the voice of the horns and just, you know, her talking about how instantly recognisable his is true, isn't it? You only need to hear two notes. <laughs> You know, of take the tiniest little snippet from any James Brown recording. You hear the saxophone comes in, and you know who it is straight away. But I, I love the thought of her, you know, wandering around the market and just hearing somewhere on this little tinny speaker, "Oh, that's Maceo Parker." <laughs> you can't miss it, can you? It, it is amazing, and that was one of the things I was going to mention just then. Is that it? It's so instant the recognition of Maceo's sound, isn't it? And it's it's rare that an, a, a musician has that, where you know instantly on any record and because he's played on so much stuff and he's he's sampled and he appears on all sorts of stuff doesn't it and you mm. you instantly know it's maceo and it's such a gift such a 
a valuable thing, I guess, for a, a musician like that to have that instant recognition. I love as well, one of the things that she was really talking about was, it kind of gave me a warm glow to think of how sort of uh, collegiate Maceo's approach to, you know, the band was yeah. that everyone should get equal credit. And that what, I loved what she was saying that, you know, when they're, dri- when they're driving from one place to the other, it's the, the, the coach driver is the most important, per- or the, the bus driver is the most important person. And everyone got equal credit on all the, the records from the, you know, the, the, all the musicians, the man- and the management, I think she was saying as well, got a credit, a publishing credit oh, on cut, yeah. a lot of the tracks. <laughs> yeah. Which, not the best businessman, potentially, Maceo, but I did love the... Uh, that ethos, I, I really, it gave me a sort of nice, warm feeling. Yeah. And, you know, clearly that was the ideal. And at some point they decided, well, you know, that's just not actually going to work to split all the pay equally. But just interesting in the context of talking about what he learned from James Brown and how much he values that experience, but also, you know, how determined he was to do things his own way. And, and you know, um, you hear all sorts of stories about uh, what it was like to work for James Brown that we won't go into in too much detail just now, but <laughs> no. he certainly chose to go down no. another path. He did. He did. And yeah, it was a wonderful, a wonderful body of work that he published or he put out, isn't it? And we're very lucky to have it. So yeah, it was it was really great to hear Natasha's thoughts on all of that. And I think, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise to us doing that interview, wasn't it? We weren't expecting to interview Natasha um, before we started, but it became clear once we'd started speaking to her that it was going to be great to really hear her thoughts on everything that went on because she was she was there she was in the room, um, the room literally when the, this album was recorded but also when a lot of these decisions were being made um you know about the, the direction of Maceo's career and and from him being a sideman to being a band leader big change yeah absolutely um, you can get in touch with us about the show if you like uh using a lifetime on planet groove at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter let us know what you think we'd love to hear from you and big thank you to Natasha for talking to us. It was fantastic to hear her stories and learn some of what was going on in Maceo's career before, during and after the period that we're focused on. Um, Natasha hosts her own weekly show as well called The Tash Talk, so make sure to check that out. She speaks to some incredible musicians. You can find that at thetashtalk.com and we'll put a link in the show notes down below. <laughs>